there was something in my gut that was just like, if you do not go do this, you will regret it. And you never know that you might end up on the same gig with somebody or end up in the same town as somebody and be like, oh my God, hey, how's it going? <laughs> I'm just always kind of like, adapt, survive, adapt, survive. Like, you know, get past it, just keep going. Hello, and welcome to the Theatre Art Life podcast, sponsored by Harlequin Floors, the world leader in floors, stage systems, and studio equipment for the performing arts. Our podcast puts the spotlight on those who create live entertainment around the world, the cultural creators, the backstage masters. My name is Anna Rob. Today, we're talking to Domenica Boscardin, who is currently a manager for technical production, event, and entertainment at Expo 2020 in Dubai. Domenica, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. So tell us, I know you because I've worked with you before, but tell us a little bit about what your, what does an event and entertainment technical production manager mean at Dubai uh, Expo 2020? So for Expo, there's events and entertainment refers to the department and that's everybody on site that is providing any sort of entertainment. There is the main stage in the central Alwasal Dome, which is the kind of heartbeat, that thing you see on any kind of photos. That's that beautiful dome right in the center. But there's also smaller stages within the districts that do constant little live performances. There's two other main stages out that also do regular concerts, dance performances, all sorts of things going on. So events and entertainment is covering all of that. With my job in technical production, I'm actually working on a smaller special projects team that is exclusive to Alwasal Dome. And we are handling the various special things that pop up, things that aren't business as usual, standard programming. So we've had a few various things. It just did the graduation for the Canadian University of Dubai, which was a really nice big ceremony. There's various countries do kind of bespoke extended little shows showcasing cultural talents, music, things from their countries. Just did one for Saudi Arabia, working on one for Australia right now. Cartier did a launch of the women's pavilion that is on site and it was a beautiful studded ceremony. We've done a few a little kind of awards and recognition shows that have come in. So yeah, it's all just different things that people come forward and they present to the programming committee that they want to do something in Awasal and then we take care of it. And recently you did the the Black Eyed Peas just performed there, right? That was definitely part of my team. I was not working on that one because I've been the only member of my team that's not working on it and playing catch up on everything else that's happening. <laughs> So I'm planning three different national days that are happening in the next two weeks. And they've been doing right. everything with the Black Eyed Peas because that is those big headline talents coming in are uh, it definitely takes a bit a fair bit of effort. I mean, how is all that managed in the Awazel Dome? Because it seems like there's stuff going on in the day and the night. And I mean, I mean, everybody needs to load in, load out and rehearse. How is that coordinated? So it is a full it is 24 seven in that dome all the time. It never, ever stops. All of the various, there's contractors involved with all of the various systems. They've got their people working basically in shifts 24 hours a day. When the gates close at night, then it shifts into maintenance mode slash rehearsal slash programming slash content checks. Like 
it's everybody jockeying for finite amounts of space because it's open and it's in the round. We can't rehearse too much during the day. And also we can't fight the sun. So anything projection and lighting has to be done overnight to be ready for the next night for a performance or several nights, whatever. So uh, it's a little bit of a trip. Sometimes I work overnight and I'm helping cover rehearsals and various technical things that are going on. Sometimes I'm in during the day and in the office, sitting around doing meetings, planning all of that stuff. Yeah, there's there are people in there working 24-7 and loading in, loading out is a bit of a trip. We can't bring trucks or anything onto kind of the ground level with people in the in the site, with patrons in the site. There is a full basement situation that can happen. Or the center of the stage is a lift that goes all the way down to the basement and can come up. But uh, it's quite small. It's only, I think it's like seven meters in diameter. So it's not. So no, a, big, no two bigger props can come in there. No. So yeah, a lot of things happen overnight. And it's oftentimes just jockeying trucks around, depending on what it is. Not everything is huge. Black Eyed Peas is, is pretty big. <laughs> I have a, like a really stupid question to ask, but I'm going to ask it anyway because I've looked at the picture of the dome and I've spe- spoken to so many people about <laughs> Awazul and and the production there. But that circle at the top is that a hole that's open? Yep. Is that or yeah? Okay, yeah. No, it's not glass or anything. It's no. like actually open the, to the sky. The Oculus, yes, it is open to the sky. Right, and the whole surface as well is like the metal framework, and then the panels in it, but they're not right up to the edge. You know, there are gaps. I missed all the rain that's been happening since the beginning of the year. Somehow, it's always on my day off. <laughs> I was going to say because it doesn't rain often in Dubai, but when it does, it it rains decently. So what <laughs> what then? Does it? Have they got some? How do they deal with that? It's a purely a practical they, question. They've got they run a tarp out and cover the stage real quick because there's gaps and, and that's just a hole straight to the basement. And then, yeah, everybody just, there's teams of people, there's contingency plans for different weather conditions for high winds, for inclement weather, for this or for that. And people dispatch and take care of all their stuff. Mm. Cause it's amazing. Cause I, yeah, everything's even the other stages while they're more proscenium style and they have, you know, kind of, a roof and like, but they're still open and they're still, you know, there's no, there's no roof over all of Expo. So. I mean, most of the time it's great because, you know, the, the weather in Dubai is fairly consistently not a rainy environment. So it's one of those places that you could bank on having as much outdoor uh, stuff as, as that, you know? And so it's really, it's amazing because it feels like every second person I know is actually over there working on the on the the project are you running into a lot of people that you know from the industry i've run into a fair few people it also seems like coming from working in macau there's a whole bunch of people that are here just from that and i haven't necessarily run into anybody i know from like back in the states but uh i've run into people that like it's like somebody knows there's those few degrees of like oh hey you know this person or you also know this person and yeah it's pretty cool. That's great. So let's rewind a little bit and just tell me, you know, you, you just mentioned that you're from the States. Where did you grow up? Did you do a, a degree in, in theatre? And how did you end up in, she's shaking her head, uh, uh, how did you end up in this industry and doing what you're doing? I, I told you we needed to title this The Accidental Stagehand. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> it's I, the I, best way, man, to come through the the, the back door to, doing stage work, I think. so. <laughs> it is, but it's also, I mean, I honestly, genuinely, I know people kind of will say things self-deprecatingly and be like, oh, I don't know how, I, how, how this happened or how I'm so lucky. Like, I genuinely have days where I'm like, what is my life? <laughs> but I, I, I grew up in the States. I grew up moving around a lot. And I fully went to college, University of Arizona, go Wildcats, fully went to college as an engineering major, (laughs) (laughs) thinking that's, I don't know, like, I I was 17 when I went to college, like, so I was 16 when I was like filling out the paperwork and you have to declare a major and like, I was friends with a lot of smart kids and they were like, Oh, everybody's going to engineering school. This is, this is what we're doing. Cool. Cool. All right. This is what we're doing. My dad is a construction engineer. I was like, yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. That makes cool. sense. <laughs> and, and I got to school and uh, I had, I had some, what I would say very stereotypical interactions with some men in the field in the professors that were just kind of like women. Blah, blah, blah. And I was like, Oh, what am I doing? Like, I don't want to put up with this for four years. This is stupid. And also finally being at the university and U of A is a big school. There's so many things going on there. It's a major university. There's three major universities in the state and it's one of them. And uh, I looked, I was like, oh my God, there's so many things I could study. So I went off on kind of being undeclared for a while. But in the meantime of all that, my freshman year, a girl that I went to high school with was in my dorm and she comes home one day and she was like, oh, hey, did you know, like, there's this theater on the campus and um, you can, like, apply to be an usher and you get to watch the shows. And I was like, oh, job. Cool. 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 Let's go apply. And when I got there, you could apply for all the jobs. There was, like, ushers or box office. I can't remember a couple others. And there was stagehands. And I was like, great. All the, I need a job. Let's just apply for all of them. <laughs> and the stagehands called me asked me to come in to interview to be for the stagehand job. And the guy sat me down. He was like, have you been in a theater before? And I was like, nope. And he was like, cool. He's like, manual labor tools. And I was like, yes, can. Because I used to go help my dad work. And like, you know, I had, and my mother also was a carpenter. Like I have parents who brought us up doing physical stuff. And like, I knew fairly well, knew my way around some tools. So I was like, I can do all that. And he was like, cool. And they hired me. And I just learned in that building. It was uh, the theater is called Centennial Hall, and they're a, a roadhouse or receiving house, as some people may know them. And would do they had a full season during the school year, and would do um, a few Broadway touring shows through the year. There would be concerts, there would be ballet, various other dance. There would be some stuff was one night, some stuff was one week. We did graduations at the end of the year. We just, it was a full season of stuff going on. And it was really nice because being on the campus, I could like go to work in the morning, start at 8 a.m. doing a load in or something, pop off to class for an hour, come back, just like tearing around on my bike. And I ended up working there for, for four years, almost five years. Like I loved it so much. I was working there a bit after I graduated. And what were you, you did you stop studying engineering or you? Oh, switched? yeah. Yeah, I have a degree in art history. (laughs) I almost went into the theater program, but they were like, they explained to me, I sat down and went to a meeting at the theater college and they explained what the demands were for the work that they would have to, that you have to do as part of the program. And I was like, 
And I asked him, I was like, that's a lot of hours. I was like, I also work over in the theater here. I was like, is there any way some of that, like, can I have partial credit or, cause I can't do all these hours. I have to work. I need the money. And they're like, no, you have to do all these hours. And I was like, that's just not compatible. Like I, I couldn't foresee, I would have to completely given up my job basically. And that wasn't an option. So, so you did your degree and you worked at the theater and then what? <laughs> and then I was like, okay, this has been fun. <laughs> <laughs> uh, a friend of mine who was living in Chicago, a friend of mine from high school, she was like, oh, hey, I took the LSATs and got a really good score. And then I'm going to go to this law school in New York. Do you want to move to New York? Or roughly something like that. And I was like, I'm not doing anything in Arizona right now. So yeah, let's move to New York. And like a month later, I was living in New York City. Uh, You'll see this as a theme. (laughs) This is great. I love it. This is really the accidental career going on right now. So you get to New York and then you get jobs in theater? No aspirations to work in theater. I thought that that was just the thing that I did when I was in college. I was like, oh, I got this degree in art history. I'm going to like try to go get a job at a museum or like a gallery. And I ended up being the assistant manager of the body shop, the lotions and potions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I was working there and I was working in retail. That's soul sucking. I, I have a lot of heart for anybody that has to do that, has done that, especially during holiday season on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. that's very specific okay (laughs) there's there's there are interesting people that have a lot of money in different places in Manhattan (laughs) but uh I did that but like I wasn't making I was doing okay but it wasn't like really good money I was surviving and so then I was like oh maybe I'll start uh I I was honestly looking on Craigslist I think for for like gig work like oh people to come I don't know whatever load a truck uh run I don't know just various little things that you would see advertised and then I ended up at one point I was freelancing for a few different lighting companies in the area I was working at a scenic shop and I was sometimes getting calls for other friends that I had met people that I I had worked with that liked me that would be like hey can you do this gig or do this gig And I was still working as an assistant manager at the body shop on the side. And I was like, oh, yeah, okay." So it's like a lot of hustle. But one of the things that happened is an old friend of mine from college that had gone out on tour. She had been a proper theater major, but we had worked together as well. She was like, oh, hey, my my boyfriend's tour is they're They're building the tour rig over in New Jersey. Do you want to go do day work? You know, like they and they paid really well to me, what was really well, it is still pretty good money. And just you go to the lighting shop and like prep the lighting rig to go out on tour. I was like, cool. And I did that and then ended up going on to doing it for a couple of other shows. And because people are always look, they're always looking for people to do that. And I kind of got into that group. And then uh, my friend Alan was going out on a tour and he was like, are you interested? Like, do you want to apply for this? And I was like, yeah, I do. Cause I remembered being in college and being like, this is such a cool job. You get to travel and do the thing that's cool. I ended up on a tour of Annie and then I started touring. <laughs> the rest is history. Suddenly you're in the lighting, into lighting. But yeah. So I, I was like, I was, I'd been a pretty decent follow spot operator and I knew my way around doing stage lighting pretty well. Cause we did a lot of that at Centennial Hall. Like 
we would pre-rig lighting for a lot of things because, you know, smaller jazz groups or dance groups and stuff, they didn't travel with whole rigs. They show up with like a stage manager, a company manager, and maybe a lighting person who hands you like a disc, load the show in the board and away we go. And they would send the plot, you know, a few few weeks in advance. So we would have pre-rigged it and set it for them. I mean, that's exactly what I used to do when I first left university was rig lights and do pre-rigs and lights and stuff like that. And I love, I mean, it's such a foundational training as well, you know, where you really get to know the nitty gritty of how things come together, you know, and how to read a plot and fly, how to fly bars in out and weight them properly and all of that sort of stuff. So it's good fundamentals. I mean, a lot of people coming into the industry now are dealing with automation and all of that, but and I mean, there's still a lot of theaters with fly bars in it, to be fair, especially in America. But uh, yeah, no, it's great. Heck, I've been into theaters on tour that are still full on hemp houses. Like there's very, very few of them. But man, talk about watching a whole bunch of people do some really skilled work. Like, yeah, <laughs> sandbags and ropes and weighting things with sandbags. And you're like, what is happening? Like, it's so cool, though, because it works so well. Yeah, absolutely. And now a moment for our sponsor. The Theatre Art Life podcast is proud to be sponsored by Harlequin. Harlequin is the world leader in floors, stage systems and studio equipment for the performing arts. Established in the UK over 40 years ago, Harlequin is the preferred performance floor for the world's most prestigious dance and performing arts companies, theatres and schools. From the Royal Opera House to the Bolshoi Theatre, the New York City Ballet to the Royal New Zealand Ballet. Harlequin's experience and reputation are founded on the development, manufacture and supply of a range of high-quality sprung and vinyl floors specifically designed for dance and the performing arts. Backed by an engineering team and independent research, Harlequin also designs, builds and refurbishes stages working with stage engineers and theatre consultants in leading venues across the world. Harlequin is the global leader in its field with offices in Europe, the Americas and Asia-Pacific. Find out more at harlequinfloors.com, H-A-R-L-E-Q-U-I-N floors.com. So then would you consider then that lighting then became your passion in terms of for work and pursuing more lighting work or is it more that you felt like, oh, well, that's what I'm good at and and I want to continue it? I think I had like a bit of passion about it because I like I like that it's creative. I like that it's it's a little bit of fun, but I think the thing that has kept me in it is that there's a lot of immediate gratification with like taking a show on tour because you start, you got to do load in, you're just like working, 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 boom, there's a show. Ah, it worked. And then sometimes you get to like then rest and like come back and just stay in that venue for a few days or a week, maybe a few weeks if you're super lucky or you end up on like a one nighter tour and then it's just like you're in the grind, but every day the hard work isn't too bad because you get like that as as like the lighting operator, you then get that moment of like, ah, there it goes. That looks good. (laughs) Now I've got it right. 30 seconds to breathe and then keep going. Um, Yeah. I did have a passion for running a follow spot though, because like I'll absolutely say that I feel like that's like playing a musical instrument. Like a lot of people can kind of do it, but the people who do it really well, and I'm, I haven't done it for so long, but I know a lot of, people who are still doing it on tour and stuff like that, like to be able to call a show to one or two other people that have never seen it before while running your own views and while making things look really just like the subtleties of 
fading in and fading out just right or being in really small shots, like that's fine tuning. That's craftsmanship. It's an art. It is an art for sure. Absolutely. I always remember I worked with one who had to do the, like this tiny little spot on the finger of, uh, the MC in Cabaret. It was at the start of the, the show. It like nailed it every night. You're like, how is that even possible? But then it's also one of those things you just like, you can't really get it wrong because it's the first thing the audience look at was this little like tiny spot with the finger before he opens the door. It's like, wow, super good. Mad, mad respect for that. And I think it's really interesting because a lot of people when they think about maybe even when they're younger and they think, oh, well, lighting designer, right? But there's so many other jobs within the lighting infrastructure that people can participate in without being a lot necessarily a lighting designer right yeah absolutely I've never I've never had any ambitions to be like a lighting designer I feel like that's I I think that there's a level of creative mind and also having to be demanding and exacting and wanting to strive for like perfection and strive for your vision and I don't know that I could sustain doing that because there's so many times where I'll be like, Oh yeah, that looks good. <laughs> Somebody else needs to be over my shoulder being like, no, make it look better. Make it look better. Cause I'll be like, yeah, just, just put a piece of tape on it. It looks fine. Uh, so it's, it's good to have for that to be, for me, I like helping realize somebody's vision. If somebody yeah. says these, these are the rules, then I like being like, okay, this is the the standard that I have to hit. Having a goal to work towards, that's healthier for me. I probably wouldn't yeah. be good at setting those goals myself because I'd be like, eh, that's all right. <laughs> <laughs> I got light and on. So, <laughs> yeah, it's fine. It's good. We can see you. It's fine. Um, but the my, my question was, um, so was your first overseas gig uh, when you moved to Macau? No. Uh, I don't remember what tour I think I was doing. I think it was the second year I was doing Annie because I ended up doing show, doing a tour of it. And then there was like a break and then some people came back and it was a smaller mounted tour. I can't remember exactly how it happened, but somebody knew of an opportunity to work for, to go do this tour of Cinderella. Yeah. Cinderella in Asia. And uh, I applied for it and I interviewed with the guy and he was like, well, he's like, do you see yourself as like a head or an assistant? And I was like, oh, I could go either way. I was like, I've been both. I'm happy in both roles. And he's like, okay. He's like, well, the other woman that I'm considering with lighting, he's like, also feels the same way. He's like, I think you guys will work well together. And then that's how I met my friend Lynn Provost. And uh, we toured around doing Cinderella in Asia with a wonderful crew of people. And sadly, that was 2007, no, 2008 into 2009. And that's when the, that whole recession thing hit. So our tour got truncated. I went back to the States. I popped on a couple of other tours and was kind of like gigging, working in New York City between some things. And like I would pop out and go on tour. But at that point, I kept a place in New York. And I would stay in touch with Lynn. Like we she went to work for Cirque du Soleil and she went to do a few other things. And I kind of like every few months you'd be like, Hey, what's up? How you doing? Good. You good? Cool. Cool. Like, and in 2014, she sent me an email that we haven't, we hadn't talked in probably a year or so. And she was like, Hey, you want to move to Macau? And I was like, um, okay. <laughs> I mean, more things, like I said, but I interviewed and like six weeks later I was living in Macau. <laughs> 
I told you it's a theme. <laughs> <laughs> it's great though, but I think it's one thing to tour a country. It's another thing to move, right? I think to live in a different country makes is a bit of a did you feel like that, that there was some cultural adaptation that you needed to do to to live in a place like this? And and what was that like that? What was that like for you? I mean, I think that there's the obvious things. There's an obvious language barrier and there's also just the like, holy cow, I'm completely on the other side of the world from my family. But like I knew Lynn and I trusted Lynn and I was like, if she thinks that like I'm going to do, and she, and she knew me, it's why she called me, you know, she was like, no, no, I know you've been in Asia. You know what, you know how things are. You're, you know, you've had some of the kind of little bit of the cultural exposure on the tour. And she was like, you're the kind of person that can do this. You'll be successful here. And I was like, okay. I trusted her. And she very much like took me under her wing and was like, you know, helped introduce me to the beautiful community of people that were at the house of dancing water. And I just kind of was like, well, this is where I am and what I'm doing now. So you get over things, but yeah, it's, it's, it's the weird things. It's the weird things that it can be so simple. Like I love that in Macau, you can take your gas bill or your power bill into the Seven Eleven and just pay them. It's that simple. But then like to go to the bank to open an account and like fill out a ream of paper. I was like, is there no way we could do this digitally? No, you must sign all of these things. <laughs> it's forwards in one way and backwards in another, isn't it? It is. Yeah. Like I yeah. can't just walk up and get a SIM card out of a vending machine very easily in the United States. You know, like have a plan with a provider and blah, blah, blah. Everywhere in Asia, you can just be like, I need a SIM card. Boop, boop, boop. Whack it in my phone. Good to go. I Off love it. Yeah. <laughs> now it infuriates and, me when I go to the States. I'm like, why can't I just have a SIM card? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's a, I think that's kind of a method of survival too is you look for those positive things, don't you? You try and find the things that you're like, oh, this is better than, you know, where I come from. So I'll, I'll appreciate that. What about your move to Dubai there? What was the what's the difference between living in Asia and living in the Middle East? That's a that's a that's a big shift again, right? Yes, and it was the it was the tightest turnaround of all of these moves. <laughs> <laughs> like Expo started on the 30th of September/1 October. I think the opening ceremonies were the evening of the 30th of September. Somewhere around like the 15th of September, I got a call from somebody like my boss here, Carl Jenkins had also worked with me in Macau. He had lived there and had been the head of lighting for our department there. He knew me and he knew that like, I was kind of looking to during COVID and everything was like, and there was no more show in Macau. And he knew that I was trying to like look towards doing something and uh, had told me that he was going to like throw my resume in for something. But like, he told me that like a while before it's so, a, I knew Expo was starting, but hadn't heard anything. And I was like, ah, too bad. And yeah, somebody called me so late in September and was like, hey, are you interested in this? Like, we'll set you up with an interview. And I was like, when would you want me to start? Isn't Expo starting like in a couple of weeks? (laughs) And they're like, well, yeah. And I was like, they're like, we'd want you to start as soon as possible. And I was like, oh, okay. I interviewed, was offered a position. And then I was like, um, Okay. <laughs> and like two and a half, three weeks later, I was living in Dubai. <laughs> That's madness. 
It was definitely one of my hardest uh, moves because I had lived in Macau for seven years and that is the longest in my life I have lived in any one single place. Wow. I had never lived in the same, it's the longest in my life I've ever lived in the same house slash apartment slash something. So I packed six boxes of stuff and two suitcases and then basically called all my friends that were still in Macau and was like, who wants things for free? Come and get them. (laughs) (laughs) That might, I mean, you probably didn't even have much time to emotionally deal with that transition if you were that quick and went straight into work, right? I think that it, it was a really, it was a really brutal few weeks of like freaking out and like, plus Macau had been COVID free for so long. And then in those last couple of weeks, there was like two flare ups where they were like shutting things down and demanding everybody go get tested. And like, Literally the night, the night before I was leaving. So October 5th, I'm at the pub having like leaving drinks with some people. And I get a text from somebody that was like, this is in the Chinese news. And I don't think it's in the English news yet, but tomorrow they're changing the rule. And I had gotten my COVID test to be able to get on the plane to leave. No, tomorrow they're changing the rule. Your COVID test cannot be more than 24 hours old to leave Macau. So I was like, I don't leave Macau till like six o'clock at night. My test is going to be like 36 hours old. They're not going to, I had to like panic and blessedly my friend Angelo, like at midnight, just before midnight drives me over to Macau side to the one place I could get the test done. Sits with me until we had to wait for the the clock to tick past midnight. I (laughs) got the test, jumped back out. Like there was just too much like that going on that. Yeah. Yeah, there was no processing it, but like it was good because the first week I got here, I had to just post up in like an Airbnb for about a week and like get through, you know, getting my documents in, getting my work visa, all of that stuff. And I basically just like hung out ordering delivery and like watching TV and reading books and being like, ah, nothing's moving. This is, this is lovely. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's sometimes that people, I think when we're surrounded by people that work in the industry, we forget how resilient that people in the entertainment industry are in terms of being adaptable to change, you know. And my theory is that everybody in entertainment, when you do a show, there's a beginning, a middle and an end. And the arc of that show could be a couple of months, it could be a year, it could be whatever. But there is more, there's a lot of change in your life as you go through. And because every time you start a show, you create this little family and you have this moment with these people and you become quite accustomed to that change of of having to let that go and then pick up another one and let that go and pick up another one. And I think I look at somebody like you because somebody doing that kind of transition would be like, that that's it is it's a big thing to do right just like okay seven years gone next job you know I mean it's it's not to be underestimated right it's definitely like a major thing to do but it's also I hemmed and hawed and hemmed and hawed and then like once I committed to it I was like okay this is what we're doing and then then it's like no longer am I doing the right thing it's like what's the to-do list to get this done I completely shift focus. But like when I was, there was a, there was a moment where I was like, is this just insanity? Like it's only a six month gig. I, what am I doing? And there was something in my gut that was just like, if you do not go do this, you will regret it. 
and I'm, I don't, I don't always think about things in those terms, but with this very specifically, it's like, I was, I remember sitting in my apartment and being like, I really feel like I might miss a chance of a lifetime. Like I would regret not doing this because expo is going to happen and it's done. Like, sure. There'll be other ones, but they won't be this one. So yeah, I don't know. It, it, I felt so strongly in my gut that I had to do this and that it was going to be worth all of whatever was going to happen. And then I just committed to it and. And then here you are back from it. And now here I am. So you don't, and you don't know what's next, right? No. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what's next. I need to figure out what's next because my two cats are still staying with a very kind friend who's housing them in Macau and agreed to temporarily house them. So Plus I want them back. I was never, I'd never had intentions of just leaving them, but I need to figure out where I'm going that I can get my animals over to be with me. Nice. And so, okay, so cool. So there's two questions we always ask our podcast guests and I will finish up with that. No, they're very easy questions. So what's, <laughs> what's the, what's your favorite, most favorite thing about your job? Oh man, it's, Honestly, if I had to think about like my job in the sense of what I've been doing for like the last 20 years, it's, it's the travel and the meeting people that I've met everywhere. Like, it's just so eye opening. I love that I've been exposed to so many cultures and so many points of view and so many beautiful souls that have introduced me to so much music and art and all of that kind of stuff. And it's really cool to think. Like it was really sad in 2020 when House of Dancing Water closed and people kind of were starting to return to their various home countries because couldn't stay without work visas. But it was, there was a sense of it where I was like, it's kind of cool to think there's a lot of countries that I could go to on a holiday or a vacation and have somebody that I could send a message to that's like, Hey, I'm in your city. Like, do you want to have a cup of coffee? Do you want to have dinner? Like, let's just say hello. And even showing up in Dubai and running into people that I had that used to work in Macau and some of whom are working at Expo or working at the other sh- another show in town, La Pearl. Like, there's so many people, and it's just so cool that there's a whole tribe of us that are all kind of the same in that sense that we're all constantly moving around, and you never know that you might end up on the same gig with somebody or end up in the same town as somebody and be like, Oh my God, Hey, how's it going? (laughs) Like that's, that's the favorite thing. It's so cool. A a global community, but one that is connected, right? Yeah, very much so. Mm. Awesome. That's a wonderful answer. I like that. The second one we ask is if there was something that you could change about your job or the industry, what would you change? Oh, that's a tough one. It is one. It is a tough one. <laughs> it's tough because I I feel like I, as you know, we've been talking, like I'm just always kind of like adapt, survive, adapt, survive, like, you know, get past it, just keep going. I mean, there's definitely, if I had to look back a little bit farther, I feel like it's not something I run up to as hard now, but as a woman, and especially like when I was a younger woman on tour as like a head electrician and like, you know, walking into venues in the morning and meeting somebody and they'll be like, plus I don't have a very typical name. It's like meeting somebody being like, Oh, hi, my name's Domenica. And he'd be like, Oh, that's kind of hard. I'll just call you sweetheart. And be like, mm, no, you won't. 
<laughs> and that happened more times than like I'd care to admit or like, you know, men taking heavy things from me or this or that. And I had a point where I was enraged by that. And then I was like, ah, you want to carry that? That's your back. Um, <laughs> I probably have something else I should be doing anyway. It's fine. I'm comforted in the, in the sense that I run across that less and less, but there, it, it still does exist. And like, I wish that the, I don't know how to say it. Like I still see pictures on like Facebook of like, you know, Oh, the crew of this show or the crew of this show, you know, and they're, they're happy and they're fun pictures. And like, you know, but I still see, I just want to see more women in all of those pictures because I know so many incredibly strong, talented women in this business. And I feel like I'll look around in my office right now and I'll be like, God, there's so many, I love it. There's so many ladies in here. But then I'm like, this is not, I want to like go on tour and show up in a smaller city and not have a crew full of dudes. I want that crew to be, you know, at least half women. I want it to hit a point where it's not just in Dubai or on major gigs or something, you know, or bigger cities. I want to go and see, even in the smaller cities, you've got a ton of girls working in the business too, because I love looking around and seeing so many ladies on the stage. There was too many days I looked around and saw no other ladies on the stage. <laughs> yeah. I remember that one day where we had it in the control booth at the House of Dancing Water and the entire control ladies booth night. was women. It was ladies night in the booth. And, I, and that was like all automation operators, lighting, projection, SFX. Yeah, everyone was there ladies. Was, it's, uh, and there was a few nights that that happened, but like the fact that it was so rare and there were so many women working in that building in good higher positions as well. Like, you know, not just all positions are important. They'll never stray away from that. But uh even then it was still so rare for it was like a magic unicorn thing for it to be the girls. Yeah, absolutely. And it was kind of fun because, but yeah, like I will say though, I mean, I don't, I don't, this doesn't for me come from a place of like, I feel like pretty much all the dudes I work with these days, like, and for a lot of times they're good people. I've, I have not been working on crews where I've had, I have felt like my crew itself was belittling towards me. I felt like I have walked into those situations in the various places I've been in on tour where for that location we were in the idea of a woman bossing around. And sometimes these dudes were like my dad's age and they'd have to listen to me. You know, I get how that's, I get where it comes from for them, but I, I want to see it hit a point where like, everybody's just like, no, there's men and women everywhere in all the positions doing the things. Yeah. I mean, some of my biggest advocates have been men, which has been a, a key thing to my success. So like, it, you know, I think that's, that's a wonderful thing too. But I think, you know, I, I want to ask you though, just as a side question, you said that it's happened less. So do you think that it's happened less so because you're older and you have more experience or is it that the industry is shifting? I think it's a bit of both because I mean, I do genuinely wonder whether my I don't give a fudge uh, <laughs> reflex towards it and be like, you don't want to deal with me? I don't care. I'm still going to go do my job. Like, <laughs> you know, I don't have time for you to act like that. So I don't know if, if I dismiss it and then I just stop seeing it. But I genuinely do think it's a shift in the industry. I do think there's a fair, about, fair bit of it that's me also just not not having time for it if somebody wants to be that way and I'm just like no 
<laughs> I reject, I reject, I reject your, your prejudice. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. So if people wanted to sort of connect with you, ask you more questions, is there a pathway to doing that? LinkedIn? You're, it's a- I am on LinkedIn. I don't check it don't as check much it. as I probably should for somebody who needs a job in two months. I'm on Facebook. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on, I'm on Instagram. Ooh, at Domenica B. Yeah. Yeah. I guess LinkedIn is such a common thing now. It's so easy to find people. That's a fairly easy way. Especially from a work perspective, right? Yeah. Because I feel like it's a good way to, if people want to ask questions, it's kind of like still that kind of formal work space to say, hey, I'd like to ask. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so check. So Domenica's going to check her LinkedIn more often. I so will. I, <laughs> I need to. If you want, <laughs> I really if you want to, to ask her any further questions, then you can reach out to her via the LinkedIn. Or if you Domenica, you thank you so much. Job, uh, any job leads, let me know. <laughs> Oh, okay. And if you want to, if you want to have the help her out with the lucky dip of her next job, <laughs> I've only got suitcases right now. I can be there real fast, <laughs> <laughs> and some cats trailing along behind at some point. At some point. <laughs> Domenica, thank you for joining us on Theatre Art Life. It's been such a pleasure to see you, catch up with you, and see what you're doing in Dubai. Appreciate it. Thank you. Theatre Art Life is a global media site for entertainment. Memberships start at only $38 US per year. You can have unlimited access to our daily published articles, including entertainment news and the writings of active industry professionals, ensuring that you are always up to date on the global happenings in the world of entertainment. Become a part of the international entertainment community and join us now at www.theaterartlife.com.